Years ago, my wife, she loved to do the cross stitch. She would always keep her little tapestry that she was working on and and the needles and all that were involved, and she would keep it with her at all times. And she made some very beautiful, beautiful cross stitch. But when you looked at the underside, all it was was just tangled, knotted thread. You had to get on the upper side in order to see the beauty. Well, life is like a cross stitch. Right now, all we really see is the underside. From our limited earthbound perspective, life is just a twisted maze of circumstances. You know, life doesn't always come with an explanation or with a set of instructions. There is a good purpose for everything God does, but you learn quickly that God doesn't always owe us an explanation. In this life, faith doesn't always get a reason. God expects us to trust him even when we can't necessarily trace him. It's only from the upper side that life begins to make sense. From heaven's vantage point, we see life as a beautiful tapestry. God is weaving a beautiful picture in our lives. Well, Luke chapter 13 begins with some folks who have been perplexed by the underside of life. And they've come to Jesus hoping that he can make some sense out of life's tragedies and inequities. Well, verse 1 begins, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You know, Pontius Pilate was a really poor choice as governor of Judea. He hated Jews, and he hated Judaism. He had no sensitivity toward both the local customs and the local religion. And this infuriated the Jews, especially this particular incident Jesus refers to. Who these Galileans actually were, we're not sure. If they committed a crime, we're not told. But Pilate evidently dispatched a Roman guard to kill these Galileans, even while they were in the temple, in the middle of the act of sacrifice. There's no doubt this was front page nudes. And Jesus is drawing from this headline in order to teach a lesson. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Now, it's an interesting question. The answer is no. In fact, Jesus says, I tell you no. These Galileans actually may not have been considered sinners at all. There's a good possibility that they incited Pilate's anger by defying the Roman authority. That they had stood up for Israel's right to self-rule. That they were seen by their peers as heroes, not sinners. Jesus says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, here's the point Jesus makes. They didn't die because they were worse sinners than the other Galileans, but they did die Because they were sinners. Not worse sinners, but they were sinners. In a fallen world, all men have sinned. And all of us deserve to die. In fact, when it comes to heaven and hell, God doesn't uh, grade on the curve. In fact, the grade doesn't matter at all. So what if you make a 34 or a 45 on the eternity test? Both are failing grades. On our own, we all flunk out of eternity. Hey, discreet sinners, they deserve hell as much as despicable sinners. 
crude sinners and cultured sinners all go to the same place. Hey, we all need to repent. Without Jesus, nobody passes. Jesus is telling us that if we don't repent, we too will perish. And then Jesus pulls another story from the headlines of his day. He says, are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Now, now again, here's the thought behind the question. Jesus is basically asking, did God orchestrate the toppling of this tower to somehow punish these 18 victims? Is that why it happened? Or did an engineer miscalculate? Or did the footings of the building erode? Or did the tour guide not read the sign that said the tower's capacity was only rated for 15 people? Or was it just a case of bad timing? Now here was the popular Jewish assumption. The tower collapsed as a judgment from God. In the Jewish mind, all physical events could be traced back to a spiritual cause. Every example of sickness or calamity or poverty could be traced back to a specific sin. You see, the common Jewish perspective on life was terribly simplistic. Bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And yet Jesus is saying, wait a minute, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. Jesus answers his own question. He says, I tell you no. I mean, did these 18 victims die because they were the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Jesus says, no, of course not. There was nothing that these men did or didn't do differently than anyone else in Jerusalem that warranted them being in that tower at the time it collapsed. The tragedy was not the result of some specific sin. But was it the result of sin in general? Apparently so. For in the very same sentence, Jesus tells his listeners Unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Ultimately, all tragedy and sickness and poverty and natural disasters are the result of sin. We live in a fallen world. Sin has thrown a wrench in the gears, so to speak. Our world is no longer the perfect utopia God created. The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, They have subjected the whole planet to disorder and to randomness. Nature has gone berserk. It now acts often in erratic and unpredictable ways. The 18 tower victims didn't die because of some specific sin, but sin did kill them. In fact, you can trace all death to its original source, and it's attributable to sin. So when a tower falls, or when cancer strikes, or when a tornado hits, it's no one's fault, and it's everyone's fault. You see, it's wrong to conclude that the victim deserved the plight due to some specific sin, but it's also wrong to assume that we're all innocent. And somehow God is at fault because he allows conditions that our sin created. You can't draw that conclusion either. Several years ago, there was a church on Highway 29 that was struck by lightning. I mean, the lightning bolt hit it square. I mean, it charred that church. 
And I caught myself sort of self-righteously thinking, wow, I wonder what was going on in that church that God would want to hit it with a lightning bolt. (laughs) You see, that's the kind of conclusion that Jesus is telling us that we shouldn't draw. I mean, what if our church gets struck by lightning? Does it mean the pastors are stealing from the offering? Of course not. All we could say for sure is that we live in a fallen world. Often we have no clue why God allows certain events events to unfold. You see, it's wrong to force a spiritual cause onto everything that happens in life. I read a quote once by actor John Travolta. He said, the richer I get and the more famous I become, the more ordinary I realize I am and that my only real talent is luck. But you know, that's tough for Christians to accept. We don't believe in luck. I mean, we believe that God's providential hand is behind all our circumstances. Hey, even Solomon made a similar statement in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11. He sounds like John Travolta. He says, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. We don't like that explanation, do we? doesn't satisfy our sense of fairness. You know, that it's just being at the right place at the right time. Yet sometimes that's the only conclusion we can draw. We can safely draw. The guys in the tower, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It goes back to the cross stitch. From the underside, life doesn't always make sense. That's why heaven will be that much more sweeter. We'll get the answers to all our questions when we get to heaven. And we'll see God's wisdom in all that he's done. Well, verse 6, Jesus also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir... Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol of Israel. For three years now, Jesus has ministered among the Jews. But they bore no fruit. Now he's on his final march to Jerusalem. This is his fourth and his final year of ministry. This was the year of decision for the Jews. Jesus is going to give Israel one more year to decide their fate. Well, he goes on. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Now, Jesus has just taught us that you can't assume a particular illness is linked to a specific spiritual cause. But neither can you assume that it's not. Sickness can be the result of some random bacteria. Or here it was the result of a demon. This woman had a spirit of infirmity that tortured her for 18 years. She had lived as a hunchback for nearly two decades. Verse 12. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, 
You are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Boy, many a crooked person has been immediately made straight by the touch of Jesus. I was one of those crooked persons that was made straight by our Lord. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Now, now here's the voice of religion. It tells God what he can and can't do when he can and can't work his miracles. Boy, man-made rules matter more to religion than the power of God. You see, religion creates tunnel vision. The law becomes more important than the lawgiver. The law becomes more important than the love of God. Yes, God told Israel not to work on the Sabbath day, but God does whatever he pleases. Religion wants to put God in a box, and God won't fit. Nobody tells God what he can and can't do, not even on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Even the Jewish law allowed certain exceptions. I mean, if you can loose your animal and lead it to water on the Sabbath day, why not free a daughter of Abraham? A daughter God loved. You know, legalism is the art of stripping rules of their original intent. You know, let's, let's take it and twist it and make it say what it was never meant to say. Legalism is law without love. God gave Israel the law to teach them how to love God, not deprive them of his love. A loveless law becomes cruel and oppressive. That's what Judaism had become in the hands of these Pharisees. Well, and when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Suddenly it hit them that the ruler of the synagogue was opposing the Son of God in the name of God. How ironic is that? How hypocritical is that? The stubborn legalist had become blind to the truth. Well, then Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, now the sprouting of a mustard seed into a large tree represents an irregular and an unnatural growth. In fact, there's no such thing as a mustard tree. A mustard plant, but not a mustard tree. It's usually a bush. Sometimes it gets pruned and trimmed back. If left alone, it grows to nearly uh, only about 10 or 12 feet at best. God intended for the kingdom of God to be like a bush, to keep a low profile, to remain more bush-like than tree-like. You know, this is how Jesus lived. This is how he moved. This is how he rolled and how he ministered. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. Jesus changed the world through love, not force. He didn't come flexing his muscle. He came exhibiting his love. He used spiritual power, not political prowess. 
You know, God never wants the church to get top-heavy and bureaucratic and politically ambitious, as it has, sadly, throughout much of its history. The church should rely on its spiritual nature, on the spiritual power of God, rather than take the shape of other human institutions and use their tactics. When the church becomes more organization than organism, Jesus says birds or evil men will nest in its branches. You see, as long as our agenda is spiritual, as long as our goal is to humble ourselves and serve, evil men have no interest in joining us. But when the church grows muscle and gets clout, suddenly selfish men, men with selfish ambition, they want to join our ranks. They want to start jockeying for power as well. They they want to turn the church into their own political action committee. Beware, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It keeps a low profile. Verse 20, another parable of the kingdom. And again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Again, leaven, like leaven, the kingdom of God works from the inside out. It functions spiritually and mysteriously and under the surface. It doesn't come in waving its flag. No, it gets into your heart. That's how the kingdom of God works. It's like leaven or yeast put inside the bread that then permeates throughout the bread. God never intended for Christianity to become an external force. When that happens, it ends up corrupt. The change that we affect is on a deeper level. God wants us to be spiritual change agents. He wants to use the kingdom of God in the hearts of men. Verse 22, And Jesus went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The word narrow is a translation of the Greek word stenos. The term means compressed or constricted. When we talk about shorthand or stenography, we're using that word. It's a compressed stenography. It's a compressed form of writing. Well, apparently, the gate to heaven is a stenos. It's a compressed gate. It's like a single turnstile. Only one person can get through at a time. No one gets swept up in the crowd and enters into heaven. No, no. Each person has to come individually. Each person has to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. Jesus says, strive to enter this narrow gate. In other words, a commitment has to be struck. A decision has to be made. Again, nobody just kind of floats on somebody else's coattails into heaven. You don't become a Christian by hanging out with other Christians. You have to decide, who are you going to follow? And to say yes to Jesus is to say no to every other so-called Savior. Remember that. Remember in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That narrows down our options, doesn't it? If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't be afraid to take sides. Reminds me of the judge who had a deliberating jury. He asked the court clerk to take their lunch order. Well, when the clerk returned, the judge 
asked if she had any idea how long the jury would be deliberating. The clerk replied, a long, long time. The judge said, well, how can you be so sure? The clerk said, well, listen to their lunch order. Eleven cheeseburgers and one hot dog. Eleven coffees and one hot chocolate. Eleven fruit pies and one prune danish. Obviously, there was a nonconformist on board that jury. And you know what? If you want to get to heaven, you have to be somewhat of a nonconformist. You can't be afraid to stick out. You can't be afraid to choose differently and to head in the opposite direction. The path to heaven is an upstream swim. As Jesus put it, you have to strive to enter the narrow gate. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you from where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Jesus taught in their streets, even entered their homes. But they never opened their hearts to him. And that can happen to you. You see, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Not everybody who knows about him actually knows him personally. Make sure that you truly know him or you'll be on the outside of eternity looking in. On the outside of heaven looking in. You don't want to hear, depart from me, from the mouth of Jesus. And again, you can cry, Lord, Lord. And yet you've never truly made Jesus Lord. Before you leave here tonight, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, I trust that you will. Well, verse 28 tells us there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Oh, my. You know, when we think of heaven, all kinds of images are conjured up in our minds. We think of forever fire and unquenchable thirst and outer darkness. But you know what we should fear most about hell? You know what the severest tortures in hell are? Here we're told what causes the weeping and the gnashing of teeth is when you see your friends and your family enjoying the blessings of heaven, blessings that you will never experience. It's the finality of it all that causes the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. You realize when you leave this life into the afterlife, you forfeit any possibility of change. If you are in Christ when you die, you'll be in Christ for eternity. If you are outside of Christ when you die, you'll be outside of Christ for all eternity. Once you pass from death to, from, from this life to the afterlife, any possibility of change gets forfeited. The permanence of what you've lost is what drives people nuts in hell. I, I believe there's a one-way glass that separates heaven and hell. Hell can see into heaven. But heaven doesn't see into hell. Heaven just looks at the glass and sees a reflection of the joys it's experiencing. It can't see the miseries of hell. But hell can certainly see the blessings that they've missed in heaven. Well, verse 29. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first. There are first who will be last. 
In other words, eternity will be full of surprises. <laughs> Folks who were in the back of the bus on earth will suddenly be the head of the class in heaven. Here's a, a little poem. I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gates swung open wide. With a kindly grace, an angel ushered me inside. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks I'd known on earth. Some I judged and labeled unfit of little worth. Angry words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. <laughs> In heaven... You may have to go to the nosebleed seats to find the famous preachers and the celebrity saints, while the 50-yard line seats will be occupied by the prayer warriors you never even knew existed, the folks who serve backstage with no attention. Well, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And, and understand, this was no idle threat. This same Herod had just beheaded John the Baptist. To, to know that he's after Jesus now would have been frightening news. But Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm not worried about that little fox. I've got power over a roaring lion whose name is Satan. In fact, Jesus' greatest demonstration of power was still ahead. The Lord Jesus would rise again on the third day and ascend to heaven. That will be his ultimate victory. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. But Jesus wasn't really worried about Herod. He was destined for Jerusalem and a Roman cross. He was on a mission for God. And now the thought of the holy city as he approaches Jerusalem fills his heart with passion. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus is going to spew out a millennium of pent-up grief and divine emotion. He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, the Jewish Talmud reads, of the ten measures of beauty that came down to the world, Jerusalem took nine. Jerusalem is a beautiful place. Even the Muslims say one prayer in Jerusalem is worth 40,000 elsewhere. The holy city, it's a majestic city. It's beautiful and blessed and boiling over with life. Jerusalem is where east meets west, where ancient meets modern, where history meets future. All three major religions lay claim to Jerusalem. It's the home of universal hopes and dreams and plans. Jerusalem is where Abraham offered his son Isaac. Jerusalem is the city that God gave David to be his capital. Jerusalem is the site where Solomon was instructed to build the temple. And Jesus recalls not just his earthly visits to Jerusalem, but he recalls the thousands of times over the centuries before he came to earth when he leaned over the rail in heaven and he longed to gather up these wandering Jews back to God just as a mother hen wanted to gather her chicks. But it never happened. And why? The ominous answer. 
you were not willing. Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In a few days, Jesus will make his triumphant entry into the city, and the crowds will sing this Messianic song. Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet now, Jesus isn't rejoicing. He's mourning over Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been a privileged city, but had never lived up to its responsibilities. The city will be destroyed. It will be left desolate. Jesus knows what awaits it. And the crowd that hails him Messiah... In a few days at his triumphant entry, we'll soon scream, crucify him, crucify him. That will seal Jerusalem's destiny. Well, chapter 14 begins. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now understand... This is not the same disease that the bulldog wide receivers have come down with this year. Dropsy. No, in the modern world, it's called edema. It's usually the result of a kidney shutdown. Tissues will fill with fluids and the body will become bloated. Arms and legs begin to swell. The skin takes on a mushy texture. Dropsy is a painful condition, and in ancient times, it was often fatal. Well, here's a man who has this disease. Notice Jesus is invited to the Pharisee's house on what day of the week? On the Sabbath, right? And a sick man just happens to be present, my oh my. A little suspicious, isn't it? You think he was planted? They knew Jesus liked to heal on the Sabbath day. Here they try to trap him red-handed. You know, seven times in the Gospels, Jesus performed healings on the Sabbath day. And he always did it to infuriate the little people. To just get under their skin. To just show them how trivial and how petty their little prejudices were. Here Jesus uh, is going to heal them on the Sabbath day. And the Jews considered healing to be work. They considered healing a Sabbath no-no. It's interesting, prior to Jesus coming to earth, all this talk of healing on the Sabbath day, it was academic anyway. Why? Because very few people got healed. But when the great physician came on the scene, his office stayed open seven days a week. They had a hard time understanding that. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now notice Jesus attacks his head on. He initiates the subject. But they kept silent. And he took him and he healed him and let him go. And then he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out of the, on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. They had no answers. Again, the law made exceptions for livestock. Why not a human being? Made in God's image. Loved by the Father. You've heard the expression, my ox was in the ditch. You ever heard that expression? That's where it comes from right here. They said you could get your ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day, but you can't help a person? 
How can that be? You can't bring a healing to a a man's life? How narrow-minded can you get? Jesus says it's heresy to think that God cares more for your pet than for a person. And so he told a parable to those who who were invited. And when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do you not sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, hey, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. No, but when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And here's the moral of the story, verse 11. For whoever exalts himself, will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When you go into the party, you don't just walk and take the the seat of honor. Somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, buddy, that's not for you. You you need to take the cheap seats back in the back. No, you you go and you sit in the back, and then if if they choose to honor you, they invite you to come forward. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 tells us, Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And at the top of that list is a proud look. God hates pride. God hates assumptions. Make us making assumptions that we're better than we are, that we deserve more treatment than we, than we do. And yet it's sad. Somehow in our society... We've turned what God considers to be a sin into a virtue. Years ago, I saw an MTV documentary entitled, The Seven Deadly Sins. Pride was one topic of conversation. Actress Christy Alley made the comment, I don't think pride is a sin. I think some idiot made that up. Rapper Ice-T echoed, pride is mandatory. That's one of the problems with the inner city. Kids don't have enough pride. No, Jesus is saying our problem is that we have too much pride. We need to humble ourselves. We need to look to Jesus to promote us if he so desires. Here's a certainty. You try to elevate yourself and you'll end up on the wrong team. Trust me. James 4 verse 6 says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 12, then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Now the Pharisee who was hosting this party, he had only invited the kind of people who could throw their own party and reciprocate the invitation. In other words, he had given in order to get. If you give to get, you're not really giving at all. I'm afraid a lot of what we call fellowship is really nothing more than back scratching. I'll scratch your back if if you then turn around and scratch my back. Tit for tat ain't where it's at. Jesus says, but when you give a feast, here's how you should do it. Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This reminds me of a true story. There was a Boston couple that was planning a very expensive wedding and reception. 
they had rented one of the classiest hotels in town for the event. All arrangements had been made when at the last minute, the groom backed out, got cold feet. Because of the hotel's reimbursement policy, or, or perhaps their lack of one, the bride stood to lose the lion's share of her money. And so she decided to go through with the reception. She'd just go ahead and throw a party. Her first step was to change the menu that night to boneless chicken in honor of the ex-groom. Then she invited the homeless shelters all around Boston to come. And for that one night, bag ladies and beggars ate hors d'oeuvres and sipped champagne. I think this is what heaven's going to be like. Grace will rule the roost. People who didn't even deserve an invitation will be treated as guests of honor. That's what heaven's going to be like. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, A certain man gave a supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now understand, in ancient times, a party invitation came in two stages. The initial invite was received well in advance. But then on the day of the party, the host would alert his guests of the specific arrival time. Here we're told, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. I mean, when the day came, when the day of alert came, you know, they all had excuses. They all had reasons why they couldn't come at that moment. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. I read about an elementary school principal who collected excuses that he had received from kids who were absent. Here was his favorite. You'll see it. Dear school, please excuse Johnny from being absent October 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and 33rd. Signed, sincerely, Johnny's dead. You know, it's been said, the man who is good at coming up with excuses is seldom good at anything else. Here was a man who was alerted to come to the party. Now it's time, but he says he needs to survey his track of land. Pretty lame excuse if you ask me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. As with the land, he'd already bought them. So what's the hurry? Why do you need to take your oxen out for a test drive today of all days? Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Yeah, that's a little bit more plausible, but I mean, he sees his wife seven days a week. Can he just slip out of the house for a few hours to follow Jesus? I mean, here is a guy who is too focused on the family. You know, here are three excuses people pose today for putting off Jesus. Same three excuses. Nothing much has changed. People have business concerns. Oh, I can't follow Jesus. People are too concerned about their possessions or their oxen. People are too concerned about their family. You can make an idol out of all three, business or possessions or family. 
Certainly God wants me to love my wife and my kids, but I can grow so introverted that I could never sacrifice a little family time for the kingdom of God. If I do that, if I get to that place, I fail to understand discipleship. Yes, focus on the family, but keep Jesus the focus of your family. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. Boy, good news sounds sweetest to those who get mostly bad news. This is why... The outcast, the rejected, or fertile soil for the gospel. You know, too often churches, they they target the upscale neighborhood. They want to win the rich and sophisticated to Jesus. Whereas Jesus is the one who says, swing the door open to the down and out, to the lame and to the main, and to those who don't get a break. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And notice the operative phrase, here is God's desire that his house may be filled. That's his desire. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The excuse makers who wanted the rain checks you know, ended up on the outside. Nowhere in Scripture does God guarantee us a second chance at the invitation. Nowhere. Never take the callings of God lightly. Never put God on hold when He invites you to come. Isaiah 55 verse 6 reads, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Eventually the day will come when it will be too late. Verse 25, Now great multitudes went with Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Boy, Jesus says some hard things sometimes, doesn't he? Now certainly Jesus isn't advocating a literal hatred of one's family. He's using here a literary device known as hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point. And in essence, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple... Your love for me needs to be so strong that it makes your natural love for your family look like hate in comparison. That's what he's saying. In other words, he he tolerates no rival affections. Other relationships are certainly important to us, but our love for Jesus should tower over all other relationships. Jesus should be paramount. He says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He mentions the cross. Crucifixion was used by Rome to express its mastery over its subjects. It was complete submission to the victim of the victim's will to the will of another. That's what the crucifixion was all about. It it let everyone know that Rome was supreme, that everyone under the empire was was, uh, dominated by Rome. And this is what it means for us to bear our cross. That I'm willing to surrender my life to Jesus. That I'm willing to put my life in complete subjugation to the will and desires of another, that being Jesus. That my plans and my desires and my motives become secondary to the will of Jesus. Verse 28 is important. He says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? 
whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. You know, here's what some people never do. They never count the cost. They'll attend church or they'll come to a crusade and they'll get caught up in the emotion of the appeal and they'll say, yes, I'll follow Jesus without ever really considering what's involved. Hey, this is not the kind of commitment Jesus desires. Following Jesus necessitates serious consideration. You need to think this through if you're going to truly follow Jesus. You need to count the cost. What is this going to cost you in the long run? It will cost you. Someone defined commitment as the willingness to be unhappy for a while. (laughs) It's true. In the Christian life, the death of winter comes before the new life of spring. Death comes before resurrection. Often you have to endure the night in order to get to the morning dawn. Following Jesus isn't just happiness 24-7. You have to decide in advance if you're going to stick out the tough patches. If it's worth it to you. Have you really counted the cost? When missionary James Calvert sailed to the Fiji Islands, he went to preach the gospel to the cannibals there. The ship captain warned him that this was dangerous business. He could lose his life. He offered to take him back. Calvert answered the captain, we died before we came. He had counted the cost. He had taken up his cross to follow Jesus. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Thomas Huxley once wrote, It doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, but it takes all there is of him. Whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus gave it all. Why? So that he could take over all you've got. So he could rule over your life. We have to be willing to lose it all to gain it all. Hey, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Well, the chapter closes, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men just throw it out. Salt that's lost its saltiness is worthless, and a Christian who's lost his edge, who's become complacent, who no longer takes his faith seriously... Likewise, it is worth very little. It's going to be of no use. Jesus closes the chapter. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there we have Luke chapters 13 and 14.